Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to share with you some essays and stories from our archives dealing with the theme of vision, and I'll begin with a brief excerpt from Frederick Frank's The Awakened Eye. I was five years old. My mother, and a friend I was expected to address as aunt, had taken us children to a modest little tea garden with swings and seesaws on the edge of our small town on the Dutch-Belgian border. It sported the elegant French name of Les Champs-Élysées, the Elysian Fields, Celestial Fields of Bliss. I can still see and hear the trio that was playing on the rickety bandstand, the thin, sorrowful violinist in his patent leather shoes, the bald, rotund pianist, the bosomy lady in white tulle, a moaning cello clamped between her short, plump thighs. The other children were still swinging and seesawing when I got bored, and as mother and the pseudo-aunt with her long nose were absorbed in the music, which did not prevent them from chattering rapturously in whispers, I saw my chance to escape across a narrow stream and found myself in a sun-drenched meadow. I lay down in the fragrant, swaying grass, tall enough to make me unfindable, and I listened to the trio far away. Then suddenly there was a loud zooming close to my ear, and I was terrified. A velvety bee circled around my head, almost touching it. But ignoring me, it sat down on a hairy purple flower that was so close to my head that it looked huge and vague and started to suck. At that moment, something happened. All my fear evaporated, but so did bee and sun and grass and I. For at that instant, sunlight and sky, grasses, bee and I, merged, fused, became one, and still remained sun and sky and grass and bee and I. It lasted for a heartbeat, an hour, a year. Then as abruptly, I was I again, but filled with an indescribable bliss. Were they not Elysian fields? The trio was still playing the tune that I remember to this day, and I can whistle it for you anytime you wish. I had probably come as close to reality as I was ever to come in this life. Let's turn now to an essay by Parabola's senior editor, Tracy Cochran. This is Visions of Joni. Quiet minds cannot be perplexed or frightened, but go on in fortune or misfortune at their own private pace, like a clock during a thunderstorm. Robert Louis Stevenson. Life is hard. Even in the most fortunate lives, not at war or in physical pain and danger, there is suffering in the mind. Why? Life won't stay still. Just when we think we have the hang of living, life changes and acts up in unexpected ways at unexpected moments. Life outside, but also inside. We are well and then not well. The aim of mindfulness meditation practice, and indeed of many practices, ancient and modern, is to help us deal with change and come to terms with the inevitability of loss. This is a gnarly challenge because our brains come wired with an automatic trigger system that causes us to fight or flight or freeze in the face of threats. This is a very ancient and primitive system, 
a simple reptile brain that does not know how to shut off in comfortable, peaceful conditions. Work pressure, disappointed aspirations, relationship stresses, these things are like lions and tigers and bears to the reptile alarm system. The fear of being fired or being broke and alone triggers the fear of death and something that is a living death. There is a theory that our fight-flight-freeze response is a way of keeping us aligned with others. We fear being cast out of the tribe into the darkness. We so fear being vulnerable and alone that we isolate ourselves from others and from life. In peaceful outer conditions, the fight-flight-freeze can take the form of harsh self-criticism, physically isolating, or living in a bubble of self-absorption. And yet in the midst of this perpetual turbulence, even through the distorted walls of our self-protective bubble, we sense that more is possible. We sense this at different times, in different ways. A great shock can trigger the sensation that you have been asleep, that you could be more alive and yet you have not been. Or else a haunted or hollow feeling can come upon you after you achieve a goal you really wanted to achieve Inexplicably, that prize turns out to be no prize, just more stress and bewilderment. Or in other ways, you may feel that you have allowed yourself to be carried along by life, that you have settled for passing, for not fully being alive in the way you secretly, deep down, know you can be. How can we be more alive? Should we leave our messy, stressful conditions and join a monastery? This is one possible plan, yet ordinary worldly life can offer deep teachings. Here's one of mine. From the time I was about 24 to about 28 years old, give or take, I worked in a skyscraper in Rockefeller Center. I was called the East Coast Story Editor of ABC Motion Pictures, a job that involved taking book editors and writers out for drinks and dinner, and by other means find material to turn into major motion pictures. I met movie stars and famous directors and writers, but I was miserable. I lived under the constant threat of being eaten by a tiger or cast out of the tribe. As stressed and busy as I was, I was haunted by the sense that I wasn't doing, or no, that I wasn't being what I could be. I heard of a friend who gave it all up to move to a ranch in Montana. Should I too go work the land and look up at the big sky? Would that help? I left work and walked through those cavernous skyscraper streets, awash in self-pity, portraying myself in my mind as a tiny, easily replaceable cog in a vast and impersonal machine. I worried about losing my job and my apartment on West 96th Street. I was terrified about what other people thought of me. I was trapped in a bubble. My then boyfriend and I looked for a cozy place to have dinner not a cold, hard, expense account place, and miraculously, on a side street, we found one. The Alpine, it isn't there anymore, looked wonderfully out of place in the midst of all that glass and steel, as if it was airdropped from upstate New York. There was a bar in front, tables with checked tablecloths in the back. There were Alpine scenes painted on the walls and pinball machines with button-controlled flippers. But this was the epiphany. There, playing pinball at one of those wonderful old-fashioned bumper-flipper-pinging-ponging machines in the back, 
seemingly sublimely indifferent to the crushing atmosphere of Avenue of the Americas, was Joni Mitchell, the great singer and songwriter whom many young people know from the movie Love Actually, was alone, no entourage or security. She was wearing jeans and boots as if she could have been on a ranch in Montana. A Molson Golden rested on a table nearby, and a cigarette burned in an ashtray. It was a long time ago. She stood straight, yet relaxed, looking serene and self-contained. By that time, she wasn't of the moment famous anymore, Yet she looked as if she was in the moment, not looking around to see if people were noticing her, yet not hiding, just concentrating on her game. She showed what it can look like to be free from merciless time, from ranking and comparison lashed and tossed about by the reptile alarm system. Who knows what was really going on inside of her? Certainly, she also has pain and mental suffering. Stories of recent health problems attest to that. Yet her easy physical posture and attention to her game suggested an inner attitude that I never forgot. The way that Joni Mitchell looked playing pinball in Midtown Manhattan that day planted a seed. Maybe we don't have to go away and live in a monastery. Maybe we can learn to cultivate an attitude of equanimity, learning to be open and at ease no matter what is happening around us. Maybe we can find a way to be quiet inside, in the midst of it all. Finally, let's turn to an excerpt from one of my favorite archived issues of Parabola, Animals from Summer 1983. This series is called A Parabola Bestiary, and this is Robert Bly's entry, Sea Creatures. First a note from the editors. Bestiaries were traditionally works of observation and natural history. Ancient and widespread, their way of observing allowed room for elements of theology, symbolism, and moralizing that strike our modern ear as wildly unscientific. The animals in these old works were not seen in isolation, but in relation to the human sphere. They carried messages and lessons and had a rightful place in a greater order. Our own day has brought more detailed facts about animals and a less secure context for the new information. As we learn more about them, can the animals still teach us? We asked our contributors to listen to an animal which has always interested them. Their responses testify to the many levels of relationship which still endure. And you can find most of Parabola's bestiary online at parabola.org. Now for Robert Bly's Sea Creatures. On a mess of greenish-brown seaweed, there is a rock crab. Ocean water still gleams on his shell. He is all matter, all substance, an accidentia, a sort of heavy downfalling of primitive light. The careless modeling on top suggests desert forts where the sun hangs in the sky. When a hand reaches out and turns it over, we see the underside, fierce like the underside of the desert. The six claws folded over the stomach are jointed segments of what has to be done, fierce bits of necessity. The will is strong, living without mother or father, bony, unsentimental, even on the upper legs that slope like arms. 
Inside the girlish arms, there is cold and muscular flesh, still visionary, washed at night when seawater carries its moony splashings through the claw tunnel. When we smell it, we feel vulnerable, as when we understand an image in a dream and an instant later fall into night, grief, laboratory coldness, the fierce salt of the dark. The coarse, grainy skin of the flounder makes one think of remarks made too coarsely and too quickly. The color is the grayish pale brown of wolf paws. Its petulant rubbery mouth widens gradually and the flesh actually is an extension or widening of the mouth. The shape becomes a thick triangle. Partway up, the fins begin and continue in thought, in architectural fantasy, what the flesh itself decided not to do. Then at the peak, the fins begin to slope off and by diminishing, make a second triangle, sliding away toward the tail. And the tail too has its fin, a sort of afterthought. The two eyes together on the upper side, poorly balanced on the crook of the nose, look sideways discouraged, unable to make the equation come out right. And the body's oystery smell recalls a life lived utterly without ideas. There must have been some violence to get those eyes twisted around to one side, probably violence from above. Whatever it was, the flounder ended floating along the ocean bottom, white side down, hoping not to be seen from above. The underside does not see the sun. It takes on the paleness of the cutworm, of the upper arms of women who always wear sleeved dresses. It must be then that half of me remains on shore, with my long line and casting rod, and the other half is down there, so that what stands above remains attached to what floats down there. Suppose Joseph had turned into a fish, and Egypt were a great river. Then wouldn't Joseph, after he had fled from the plantation manager's wife, slipping away naked, heading for the water, have glided about the legs of the fat cattle soon to rise from the river? moving slowly as those fish whose long black feelers touch the muddy boulders. And if he became a man again and slipped back into bed, would he be the brother on shore or the brother under the water? The oyster looks impenetrable and thuggy, and it is the size of a baby mountain lion's paw. Its surface is flaky, breaking off, crazily staked with little abdominal errors. There are waves here, as on gypsy skirts, concealing what? Hands, as they move to open it, feel grainy, about to violate a privacy. Small flakes of subtle calcium fall away. They are the grief and surprise that come away from lips closed too long. We have to call for a knife, which is the gift of those who lived before us. A strong knife, the end, simple-minded, but without puritanism. It arranges its hard-ended molecules so as to recapture the past, gallop up the valley, return the dead to their former selves. The oyster body wets the tip of the nose as one tries to gulp it up. The lips feel satisfied as if they deserve what they have received. And when we see the two empty shells, we feel it is right to praise the naked life. The shells are ready now to be thrown away into gardens or thrown back into the ocean as simple plates of desire.
Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media, where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr, and where we have just begun a really exciting Patreon campaign. Remember that thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from Alan Turing, who said, We can only see a short distance ahead, but we can see plenty there that needs to be done. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.